Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School Summer Session 1998, Week 3. There'll be three lectures this week as usual. They'll all be in this room. Donald Crummel will be speaking on Wednesday and I'll be speaking on Thursday. Our lecturer this evening is an old friend of the Book Arts Press, Richard Wendorf, talking about two libraries. It's a great pleasure to welcome him to the University of Virginia. Richard Wendorf. Thanks, Terry. I love Terry's introductions. Ars longa curriculum vitae brevis. <laughs> Very brevis indeed. <laughs> well, it's a great pleasure to be back here at Rare Book School and here in Charlottesville and here in the Rotunda, which I requested this evening, and that's why you're not sitting in the Clemens Library. Uh, so I'm not going to show slides, and we can be right here. Um, this is the third time I've had a chance to give a talk at Rare Book School. My first opportunity was seven years ago at Columbia uh, when I gave a talk in that series that Terry called Two Years Out. Now, two years into a new job, what are your impressions and what do you want to tell people about? And so I gave a talk called The Petrified Mouse, Impressions of My First Two Years at the Houghton Library. How many of you actually heard that besides poor Terry? How many of you can't remember whether you heard it or not? <laughs> That's the honesty I want to see. In any case, I have a pet peeve about repeating myself, so I, I inevitably have to retrace my steps just a little bit if I'm going to talk about the Houghton Library this evening as well as uh, the Boston Athenaeum. In any case, uh, I have to begin with the usual confession, which is that unlike most of you in the audience, I'm not a proper librarian. I'm not a trained librarian. I haven't gone to library school. I began life as a, as a teacher and as a scholar professing English and art history at Northwestern University for actually 13 years. And you might ask yourself, what would persuade a reasonably reasonable person who had the leisured life of a professor at a research university to give it all up at the age of 40 and dive into the cold waters of rare books and rare book libraries? besides perhaps the prospect of not having to grade yet another essay by an undergraduate on the motif of hope and despair in Johnson's Razzalus. <laughs> well, um, there were a number of factors. I love teaching, um, but I was fascinated by the opportunity of having some small hand in leading uh, an institution, a cultural institution, in certain ways, and I was particularly drawn to the Houghton Library, which has, as you know, not just books and manuscripts, but also the Harvard Theater Collection and a wonderful department of uh, printing and graphic arts. And so, I chose the quiet life of a librarian, uh, what Johnson might have called a harmless drudge, and what did I discover? Well, let me take you to May Day, 1996. Not in Red Square, but in that redder square, Harvard Square. <clears throat> I woke up that morning, I showered, I was about to eat breakfast, I looked at the front page of the New York Times. There was an article there about a long-lost manuscript by Louisa May Alcott, the first of her novels, absolutely unknown, quote, apparently miscatalogued a generation ago at the Houghton Library. <laughs> which had been discovered, in quotation marks, by two scholars. Well, no breakfast. Jumped in the car, told the staff from the car, take no calls until I get there. Arrived and discovered that we had, according to the Harvard News Office, a firestorm on our hands. Every single... <coughs> television and radio station in America, and most of them in Japan, it turned out, wanted to take a look at this manuscript, which of course had never been seen by anybody before. Well, I knew damn well that not only was it fairly well known, but it was online. It was in our electronic catalog, unpublished first novel. But that didn't, uh, that didn't make sense to the media, who wanted to have a little fun with it. Now. Uh, the Harvard News Office said, why don't you just take it easy, go home, we'll handle everything for you. But I, I discovered that when you have two people holding for you, 
and one is the Chronicle of Higher Education, and the other is People Magazine. Your 15 minutes have arrived, and you better grab them for everything they're worth. And so I gave a news conference. I got my, what, three seconds of fame on the national news. I got a soundbite on Dan Rather. We tried to set the record straight. We did Good Morning America live from the exhibition room the next morning. And did the New York Times print a retraction? No. And uh, something like 10 months later, when the TV film version of The Inheritors came out, they ran the same story. So it was a frustrating experience, uh, one that taught me something about how to handle the media, uh, also something that I thought led to some interesting thinking about how we define ourselves as rare book institutions in terms of the general public. I asked the reporters at the time, would you be here if I were simply telling you about what we acquired in the last two months? And they said, no, we wouldn't have any interest whatsoever. It had to be a fluke of some kind. Uh, so we milked it for everything it was worth. It certainly gave me an increased sense of the distance that most of our institutions maintain with the general public. Elitism is something I learned very early on in my position that you have to think about a great deal. Uh, one of my former colleagues, Hugh Amory, whom some of you may know well, wrote the following view of the rare book world. Rare book libraries come in three varieties. The familiar temple, a form they share with public libraries. The corporate headquarters, specimens of which may be seen in the Beinecke Library or the Humanities Research Center at Austin. And the private house, as in the Morgan or the Huntington. At Harvard, he wrote, Widener is the parish church and Houghton is the manor house. The social implications of this are not lost on our readers nor, I found out, on college and university librarians or deans. It seems to me that elitism, or at least the public perception of it, is something that I was saddled with at the very beginning, and it never went away. And it certainly is the case at the Boston Athenaeum, I think, screwed up another uh, winch or two. Let me give you another example. There was a phenomenon uh, that lasted for several years in Boston called the 10 o'clock news. Christopher Lydon of The Connection was the person uh, who was the uh, moderator and it was very intelligent and moderately successful and of course it was threatened with extinction very early on. David Nyhan writing in The Globe on its behalf wrote as follows. At times it could be so arch, so fay, so prissy, so unremittingly correct you'd choke. It's like the Houghton Library at Harvard. <laughs> Not for everybody, sure, but it's damned important there is at least one of its kind thereabouts. Well, the 10 o'clock news is gone. The Houghton Library is still there, and I think the question in my mind for a number of years is how to be correct, that is, how to be shrewd, how to be wise, how to be foresightful without being either prissy or Fay. Well, let me take you back to the Houghton Library's origins, at least briefly, in 1942. It was the first rare book library of its kind, in the sense that it was the first library with its own separate building at a North American university. It was the first to have what was then state-of-the-art HVAC, something I had to renovate the minute I got there. And because it was opened in 42 and built from roughly 39 to 42, it obviously bore the distinct imprimatur of the conflict in Europe and was thought by everyone involved and by I think many people in England and on the continent as perhaps being what was going to turn out to be the last refuge of Western culture, something that came natural, I'm afraid, to Harvard. Um, but nonetheless, it's something that very much affected the collecting, which is much wider than you would normally expect in uh, a rare book library at an American university, partly because, to explain it in another way, many of the collections came directly from Widener. They were simply carted across the bridge or in the tunnel underneath the tube, or they came from uh, older collections around the university. 
The story of the origin of the Houghton Library is the story of four men and one woman. Let me start with the woman, Amy Lowell, who was the sister of the president of Harvard, as we say. Um, she was also a trustee of the Boston Athenaeum, and it's actually because of Amy Lowell that the Boston Athenaeum didn't move from the top of Beacon Hill in 1913 or so down to what is now the Ritz-Carlton condominium annex next to the Ritz itself. She thought that it should stay where it is, and so they sold the land to the Ritz, and we have a taller Boston Athenaeum than we would have had otherwise. Um, but most of you will know her as a poet, and some of you will know her as the biographer of John Keats. And she left a fairly significant uh, bequest to the university, which has been used for the purchase of Belle Lettres ever since. And it is by far the largest single endowment for books that the Houghton Library has. And it's literally the only fund that will allow the Houghton Library to purchase large literary archives. And it's come in handy many, many times. The men, Kais Metcalf, the university librarian, was arguably the first person to have it in his head that you simply couldn't have one central library, that you had to have satellites. And he's given credit, although I'm not sure exactly with what um, degree of accuracy, for envisioning a Houghton Library, an undergraduate library, which became Lamont, and a remote storage library, which became the New England Deposit Library. We actually, well, that's another a digression. If you're interested in the New England Deposit Library, I'll tell you what's happening to it some other time. Um, the second person was uh, Bill Jackson, the founding librarian, uh, an incredibly tough and brilliant man uh, who had, as you know, a very strong interest in early printed books in English, uh, later loosened up and allowed some 18th century books into the collection, uh, and pretty much cleared out the attics of American manuscripts uh, throughout New England. There's a wonderful short biography of Jackson by Bill Bond, his successor, in the collected essays of Jackson that have been published by the Harvard Library. And I, if you have any interest in these institutions and their history, I urge you to take a look at it. Their lives back in the 1940s and 50s were rather different than ours today. Philip Hofer, many of you will know because of the remarkable collection of printing and graphic arts that he collected himself and then slowly but inexorably gave and then bequeathed to Harvard. And the last person, of course, is Arthur Amory Houghton, Jr., class of 29. Although he never graduated from Harvard, uh, he had to go take care of his ill father. He was lacking one credit. He said to me, maybe I'll go back, stay at the Ritz, hire a big Cadillac limousine and take Roger Stoddard's course and get it over with. <laughs> but of course, he didn't live, didn't live to do it. He, he, he was convinced that Harvard had to have a separate rare book library. He decided that he would do something about it. The story is that he bought a convertible and convinced a few friends of his to drive across the country, ending in California, raising money along the way. But it was a hot summer in Cambridge. And he finally decided it was so hot that he'd simply give the money himself rather than have to make the trip. And so it was good old Corning glass stock uh, that built the Houghton Library and, of course, many other things um, at Harvard. Um, Arthur was a, an architect manquet. Some of the most interesting designs for the building are ones that he came up with himself. They're fascinating to look at. And he was, I think, a brilliant person in many ways. He, he, he thought that if any idea was really worth its salt, that he would back it at the beginning, and then it would make its own way. And the Houghton Library did, although he, he continued to be very helpful to us. Uh, he, he, he began that program that's known today as A, uh, a Better Chance, some of those Head Start programs for disadvantaged teenagers so that they could go uh, to college. He was a really remarkable person. Um, he took over the Stuben part of the Corning Empire, uh, looked at it, let the employees go, locked the door, 
and with his friend Jim Houston, the designer, took baseball bats and they broke every single piece of Stuben glass that had been made to that point. And he said, from hereafter, nothing but the very best will be made by Stuben. So the Stuben you know today is absolutely Arthur's invention. He believed, for instance, and this is what a quirky mind he had, he tried to convince me that smoking, he was, he was a chain smoker. He tried to convince me that smoking cigarettes was not addictive and did not cause cancer. He blamed it all on the advent of the butane lighter. <laughs> he said that if you smoked but used an old-fashioned match, you'd be safe. Anyway, if you want to read more about him, take a look at Tom Hoving's book, Making the Mummies Dance, in which he is the Svengali figure behind the Metropolitan Museum for the first 150 pages or so. It's a chilling portrait and a very convincing one. Well, let me say something about the Houghton Library today. Um, It has a budget of about $3 million. Uh, It has an acquisitions budget of between $700,000 and $800,000 a year, which makes it probably the third or fourth of its kind in the academic world in this country, uh, dwarfed rather sizably by the Beinecke Library and uh, by the Ransom Center, and kind of neck-to-neck from year to year uh, with Lilly. Um, But what they don't have in funds each year, uh, people have more than made up for with Yankee ingenuity. Its strengths, its holdings, I think, are fairly well known, and I'm not going to go into any detail this evening about them, but I might just mention that it's it's not all just dwems that they have, although they're perhaps um, the best best known, dead white European males. Um, There are a lot of dead white European women, um, Amy Lowell and uh, Louisa May Alcott, Dickinson, of course, uh, a great collection, Marguerite Yersenar. Um, While I was there, uh, we acquired the papers of the Nigerians, Shoyenka and Achebe, uh, Harrison Horblitt's wonderful collection uh, of the first 10 years of photography, the archives of the New Republic and of Houghton Mifflin, which is not technically related to the Houghton Library. We didn't get everything I wanted while I was there. I was really set on having the papers of V.S. Naipaul. But I was outbid by a factor of two or three by the University of Tulsa. And I recently saw, as many of you did, that uh, Carter Burden's collection has gone to the Morgan Library, and the the Pierre Matisse archive has gone to the Morgan Library, (laughs) uh, which was in many ways our great competitor. Um, But I don't worry too much about that because I think they're very well placed there. If I had no limitations on what I could buy and been able to buy one archive that I thought would have been the most interesting to bring in, it would have been the papers and library of Susan Sontag. And I'm hoping perhaps that might still end up there someday. Well, um, I've got to say that when I arrived nine years ago, uh, I discovered that in many ways the institution was in a certain amount of disarray. And I discovered myself more than I had imagined in uh, that that cliched role of um, maker of change. I had, to make, I had to make some hard decisions. And it wasn't always easy during those seven and a half years. Um, there had been a two-year hiatus when there was no direction for the library as Harvard took its leisurely time trying to find um, a new librarian. I discovered that seven of the 35 or so jobs, the regular jobs, had no funding whatsoever for them there was just perhaps enough left over at the end of the year from some other part of the college library to pay for it. And it took me all seven and a half years to straighten that out. Um, There was no planning for the 50th anniversary, which was coming two years after I arrived. Um, If you wanted to find a book in the library, you had to go to four different catalogs in three different rooms to make sure that we either had it or didn't have it. And so there was a great deal to be done. And as I look back, there are a certain, a certain number of things that I'm, I'm very pleased that we were able to accomplish. 
The most important, in some ways, was the retrospective conversion of the card catalog, putting everything pretty much in one place. Uh, But I discovered that deciding how to get that done taught me a lot about the strange new world I was part of. I said, let's make it part of the central conversion of all those records. And they said, well, not so fast, Richard. Surely you have a donor who would like to pay for the Houghton Library as part of retrospective conversion, perhaps one with a European title. And I said, no, I don't think that's how it's going to work. I mean, if you want the Houghton Library to be part of the central college library system, if you want us to row with you, then we're going to have to share the resources that are at the heart uh, of, of Harvard. And finally, finally, we prevailed on that. Um, and, and we had some funds available for some cleanup work as well, although it will go on for, on and on, you know, for a long time, as you can imagine. We did a renovation of the HVAC. It took a year, and it cost a million dollars. Um, we computerized the library. Well, that doesn't sound like much, but when I arrived in 1989, I took my computer that I had purchased from Northwestern, and I went to plug it in the wall. There were no three-pronged plugs. There was only one PC in the entire building in 1989. So there was a great deal uh, of work to be done. Um, There was no Harvard Depository Library. And I felt very strongly from the beginning that we should be part of that and make use of it as much as possible. And I really had to drag a number of my colleagues along on that one. Uh, We put together a visiting fellowship program. And there are now 12 endowed or externally funded visiting fellowships. Some of you perhaps had those fellowships. Um, Again, that was something that I thought was natural, but had to fight for. I had to fight with a central administration that said, why give money to people outside of Harvard? Why bring people in? And another, another argument that I came up against was, Why should we fund anything in the humanities when there's so much money out there for people to do their work? And I found I had a a basic educational task in front of me, letting people know what was going on and forcing them to read the Chronicle of Higher Education to see exactly uh, how blighted certain, certain areas were. And we got through our 50th anniversary and had a great time with it. And I had the opportunity to name four of the six uh, uh, curators and department heads, which was uh, one of the most interesting parts uh, of, the, of the time I had there. And when I left that very month, we were able to put in uh, soft cover a 92-page strategic plan, which I hope is not a millstone around Bill Stoneman's neck. But Terry will have him here in a year and a half or so, and he will talk about his first two years at the Houghton Library, and he can, he can speak for himself. But I think the most interesting part of that process for me was simply getting all of us to work together, everyone involved, everyone, you know, including the guards, um, to think about what the future of the library was going to be like, and to get people who are in departments that didn't talk to each, very mu- each other very much to sit in the same committee and learn about what each other did. It was an interesting process for me to be part of, and something I learned a great deal from. I'll say one last thing about the Houghton Library, which is that I think the most important thing we did together was to open it up to the university as a whole. When I arrived, the chair of the English department said to me, remember I'd been an English professor and I knew a lot of people there, um, he said, well, it's an interesting mausoleum. And I think that really was, to a certain extent, the view on campus. And one of the first things I tried to do was to put glass doors on the front of the building to let people know that we were open and to invite people in. Uh, We reached out as effectively as we could to the faculty, trying to show them the ways in which they could use our resources for undergraduate teaching as, as well as research. And in a sense, we were, within a couple of years, maybe three years, beginning to feel that we were the victims of our own success because we had so many seminars going on that we didn't have people to invigilate, we didn't have people to prepare, and we, we had to be very careful about the number of students and teachers we had at any one given point. 
But I'm still very pleased um, that we were able to uh, pull ourselves much closer to the center of the research and the teaching uh, mission of, of the college itself. Changing an institution's ways is, is not an easy thing to do. Uh, our university librarian, Sid Verba, was fond of saying that Harvard was a bit like a super tanker. Very, very hard to change its direction. But once you change the course, it actually goes rather quickly and rather effectively. I'll tell you one little story, and this is a story I did tell seven years ago. About two months after I arrived, late, late in the afternoon, someone came to my office and said, we found something very disturbing in the stacks. Well, you can only imagine what I, <laughs> what I was thinking about. I said, what is it? And he said, we found a mouse. And I said, well, is it alive or is it dead? And he said, oh, it's dead. And I said, how dead is it? And he said, oh, it's been dead a long time. It's a petrified mouse. And I said, well, thank you very much for telling me about that. But he didn't leave. And I looked up, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, well, Richard, we're not allowed to throw anything away until the director's seen it. <laughs> and I said, I think that's okay. Why don't you just dispose of the mouse? <laughs> well, did I leave things unfinished? Of course I did. Um, uh, there's something that will take a long time to accomplish, and I think that's probably true of most of the places you're from. And that's, once you've gone through the retrospective conversion of the card catalog of books, you've got to worry about everything else you've got. And we've made some decent progress towards the electronic cataloging of manuscripts and of broadsides and of maps and of, well, you name it, photographs and so on and so forth. But it is literally an endless process. And it's going to take a great deal of time and a great deal of grant money to get that done, and a good deal, uh, a good deal of agreement about the ways in which one is going to catalog electronically. And when I arrived nine years ago, there was no agreement anywhere that I could find uh, about it. Uh, but now we have some standards, and things are um, uh, a lot better off than they were before. And the other thing I'd say is, and, and again, this would come through endless development or fundraising, is that the staff probably needs to be a little larger there. Perhaps not as large as it thinks it needs to be, but people who work very, very hard at the Houghton Library, as I think people do everywhere, um, but it is a, a very pressured environment, and I think the staff really does need to expand by perhaps something like 10%, perhaps by three or four people at the very least. And that is something that's going to come very hard, given the kinds of constraints that the college and the university libraries place upon those infamous FTE counts. And also, and this was the single most frustrating thing for me, the ways in which the university cramps the ability of a library director to find external funding for what you want to do. Um, I found that to be the, the really the one uh, frustrating thing that, that um, perhaps made me think about making a move at some point. But in fact, I wasn't thinking of this um, a couple of years ago. Let me take you back to May Day, 1996. Literally three or four days after we had the brouhaha over the non-discovery of Louisa May Alcott's unpublished, now published, first novel, which is not very good, actually, um, I was, I was contacted about um, the directorship of the Boston Athenaeum, which was an institution I knew pretty well. I had done research there uh, on, on my most recent book on Sir Joshua Reynolds. I loved it. Uh, I had been given a complimentary membership by the director, whom I had gotten to know very well, Rodney Armstrong. <clears throat> but I was reluctant in many ways. And reluctant not because I didn't believe in the kind of library it is, but because... <clears throat> It was such a happy place, and people loved it so much that I wasn't, I wasn't sure that they were going to do the kinds of things that I thought would be interesting and exciting. But I talked to the search people, 
and I had a wonderful conversation with a search committee, which was mostly trustees, and I was convinced fairly quickly that I could make some kind of difference there and that the Athenaeum was really at a turning point in its uh, fairly distinguished and interesting career. Um, I knew some of the staff members fairly well, including John Lannan, who's the associate director and has um, been a staunch supporter of Rare Book School here. He's here this evening. Um, And uh, I was eventually persuaded that there'd be a lot to do and a lot to enjoy. The Athenaeum has very different origins from the Houghton Library. It was created in 1807 by uh, a small handful of uh, literary gentlemen who wanted to start uh, a literary society. It grew, I think, far beyond uh, any ideas they may have had uh, about what an Athenaeum was going to be. It's not the oldest of American Athenaeums, as you know. Uh, The Redwood Library and many others are older. Uh, But it took hold in Boston for obvious reasons. And uh, by the time its current building was erected in 1849, it was the fifth largest library in America. It also had the largest collection of art on public view in Boston. It was three stories. First story was statuary. The second story was the library. And the third story was a paintings gallery. And it had this wonderful uh, uh, staircase that led you from one level to the other. It was, even though it was private, it was, in a way, very grand and very public. Certainly, if you wanted to see what was being painted in Boston, that's where you went. And in fact, uh, Gilbert Stewart and his daughter uh, both had studios in the building. There were also, at some point, and I'm not exactly sure when, I've asked the archivist to to let me know a little more about this. There were even scientific laboratories, I mean, very small places you could do scientific experiments. And so it represents, in an interesting way, really an enlightenment view of culture, a unified view of culture that cut across various boundaries in a way that, goodness knows, universities don't do today, or they do so with some difficulty. Uh, The second half of the 19th century saw enormous expansion. The Athenaeum's trustees decided that it would not become the Boston Public Library. And so that was created. They decided it would not become the Museum of Fine Arts. And so the art collections formed the nucleus of the MFA, both through gift and through sale. And the earliest exhibitions by the MFA were actually on the third floor of the Athenaeum. And we have some wonderful paintings that capture what those exhibitions looked like. Today, uh, I must say that we're an unusual hybrid. Um, I hate to break the news to you, but we're no longer the fifth largest library in America. Um, But we do have uh, 600,000 books. We have a a significant and very interesting manuscript collection. We have George Washington's library, or the very largest part of it. We have arguably the largest collection of Confederate imprints in this country. You can ask me later about that. Um, There is a wonderful print and photography collection that centers naturally on Boston and New England, uh, led by Sally Pierce, who was here two weeks ago. It has one of the first conservation labs attached to uh, a library of its kind. Um, It still has, I think, some very interesting art collections, not just the bus, uh, the great bus from the 19th century, but we have 284 paintings. Um, and some of them are very, very distinguished and interesting indeed. And beyond all that, we have our historic landmark building at 10 and a half Beacon Street, now five stories high with two sub-basements, a building that Cleveland Amory in the proper Bostonians called grimly archaic, although it's actually been cleaned on the outside, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we're going to do on the inside Well, let me just say that when I talk about it being a hybrid, I think we're three different institutions in one. And the staff and my trustees and some of our close friends have had a lot of discussions about what we are and where we're headed during uh, the past year and a half. And I've tried to make people 
refrain from wanting to have the Athenaeum mean one thing. <clears throat> it's okay for us to be at least three things at once. We are still a membership library. We're the largest one of our kind in the country. We are, because of the nature of our collections, also uh, a research center and, to a certain extent, a special collections library. And thirdly, we are a cultural institution sited in the absolute geometric center of the city with a fantastic opportunity to reach out to a variety of communities, just as the original Athenaeum did, uh, well, 150 years ago, if not 200 years ago. Uh, and so that's the way in which I preach uh, the future of our institution. I mean, it, it's, in, it's, it's easy to say that we're part of the definition of what a proper, a proper Bostonian is. Do you know that old litany? You have a share at the Athenaeum, a plot at Mount Auburn, a seat at Symphony, and a close relative at Maclean's. That's a psychiatric hospital. Um, uh, some of that is still true. That we still have a thousand. We don't ask me which part. <laughs> We're still owned by a thousand and forty-nine proprietors. Some of them are institutional, but most of them are individuals, and they can hand those down, bequeath them, give them to friends along the way. But beginning in the in the 1970s, Rodney Armstrong opened up the membership in a very important way. First, by creating life members which you could purchase for $1,000, and then creating regular members. And we now have over 5,000 members, as I said, who pay $75 to $150 a year for their membership privileges. We extend complimentary memberships to academics, professionals at other institutions, people who need our help. We have, and I think this is the best single statistic of all, of those 5,000 members, 665 are 35 years old or younger. That number was 300 a year and a half ago. And our younger members are doing a terrific job of uh, reviving a number of things and putting together an interesting series of talks. We have lectures usually twice a week. Uh, a number of interesting talks on Boston and the built environment. Well, what lies ahead? Um, I want to say something about the challenges we face. <clears throat> um, the most important thing we need to do is, or can only be captured in a negative way, I think, and that is not to change the fundamental character of the institution. We are a membership library. We need the support of those who love the institution for what it is right now. We're behind in many ways. There are a lot of things we're going to have to change, but we're going to have to change them as intelligently and sensitively as possible. How many of you have been to the Boston Athenaeum? How many of you have actually been there? About 15 people. Well, I extend an invitation to all of you, um, and it'd be interesting if you came within the next year, because if you come after that, things are going to be, as we say, rather different. Let me explain some of the things we're doing. And uh, one of the things I, I do is to say that it's a bit like the restoration of the Harvard Faculty Club. As one, as, as one of my friends at Harvard said, after they closed down for a year, he said, don't worry, it's going to be just the way it always was, only better. And in a sense, that's the kind of conundrum we have as well. We are out of room, out of space, absolutely out of space for our book collections, but also for painting storage, for furniture storage, and for people and their workstations. The building we have right now is an 1849 building that was customized in 1913 to become an Edwardian library. If you look at our third floor, which used to be a book stack after it was a paintings gallery, it is absolutely filled with people doing cataloging, rare book cataloging, regular cataloging, acquisitions work, desktop publishing, you name it, end processing. None of those people were supposed to be there, and I'm going to take them all out. It's going to be an interesting process. 
we will have a book stack and a reading area smack in the middle of the building again, given a little bit of time and a lot of money. Um, we have a conservation lab that we're very proud of, but it's no longer state-of-the-art. It's too small. We have three and a half FTEs and five people. Uh, we're going to increase that to seven or eight people plus interns and volunteers, and we're going to have a lab that will accommodate something like eight or nine people at a time with a total of five FTE. Um, we have been obviously converting our card catalog. The code name for it for a while was Brahmin. <laughs> but the staff finally chose Athena, and it's worked very well. I, I loved coming across this. This is in the um, newsletter of the New York Society Library, volume five, number three. Teenagers do it. Toddlers do it. They even say in Boston that the Athenaeum does it. Let's do it. Let's use the terminals. And Athena has been very, very successful. Um, and what do we face next? Massive cleanup, keeping the old cutter catalog, which has still information in it that we'll want to take a look at from time to time. And, of course, all of those prints and all of those photographs and the manuscript collections that have to be properly cataloged as well. Well, we're a research center, or at least we say we are. We have virtually no place to put our visiting researchers. We put them right next to my office, which is a noisy place, I have to confess. We have central air conditioning and humidity control only for rare books and prints and photographs. But if you want to use something that we have, we take it out. And in 96 degree, 98% humidity weather, you sit at it, sit with it at our table uh, with uh, not as much security as I think we need to have. Uh, we've been very careful, and I suppose we've been very lucky. But we have to change that radically. So one of the things we're hoping to do is to take this kind of makeshift operation on the fourth floor where we have our central offices and move it down to where the exhibition gallery is on the second floor. So we'll have a special collections reading room with a staff entirely around it. That will be next to where the photographs and the prints are so that we'll have a kind of concentration of librarians uh, in one place in the building, really for the first time since 1849. We'll then push our public our public events, including the exhibitions, down to the first floor, down to the ground level, so that we'll have more access to the general public, which is something that's very much on my agenda, but we'll also have more security at the same time. We put a sign in front of the building a year and a half ago. This is something the trustees did just before I arrived, telling people what we were. There was no sign on the front of the building. It simply said, ten and a half unless you look very carefully at a little landmark plaque. Well, you know what it's like. If you have to ask, you're not welcome. And since we put that sign up, we've had a 33% increase in the number of visitors to the building and to our exhibitions, which has been absolutely marvelous. And I'm very interested in the exhibitions we have. Uh, we obviously exhibit materials that are in our collections. But we're doing something else, which is, I think, very interesting, and it's partly hand-in-hand -hand with a, an artist-in-residence program. And that is, each year or so, to have an exhibition devoted to the contemporary arts of New England. We've had painting, we've had ceramics, we're going to have one devoted to draftsmanship, one to photography, one to book plates, and I'm hoping to mount one on carving in stone and wood in about four years' time. It seems to me that no other local institution um, really represents so many aspects of the literary and the artistic worlds in the Boston area, unless, of course, it's the Houghton Library. Um, let me close by saying just a few things. I, I might say, by the way, you might ask, how much is all of this going to cost? Um, I imagine it's going to cost between 15 and 25 million dollars. And we have raised 10. And we'll have a fund raising 
drive, a development campaign that will become public in October, and we hope it will last about two or two and a half years. And we imagine that we're going to, if not be entirely closed, which I very much hope we'll not be, we will be diminished in accessibility. I think that's a good euphemism for probably a year and a half, possibly two years. So come the year 2001, it will be a brave new world for us indeed. I've been talking about two different institutions, and they really are different in many ways. And I sense the difference mostly given the ways in which we do business. The fact that I work with a group of 20 trustees rather than within a large central library administration. Some of you have probably been on both sides. It's an interesting comparison to have. And there are advantages and disadvantages on both sides, no matter what Gordon Ray wrote years and years ago. In many ways, though, the institutions are very similar. And I'll tell you a little joke that was told to me when I left Chicago to come to Harvard. There once was a man who had two sons. They were identical twins. And for the life of him, he couldn't tell them apart. And true to form, one became a Harvard gentleman, and the other became a Yale rowdy. And at the end of four years, they went home, and their father still couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> it's a wonderful joke, because you can tell it the other way around, too, <laughs> depending on your audience. Um, well, I tell it to you because I'm often reminded of the ways in which we are and are not alike. We're certainly not identical twins, but we face many of the same challenges together. When I gave my talk at Columbia seven years ago, here's what I said the challenges to the Houghton Library would be over the next five to ten years. And I had to go back to that talk and look at these carefully and decide whether I would include them. But I think, in fact, they're not just challenges that all of you, or at least many of you, have faced and are facing, but they're ones that are much more under control than they were at the time. So here they are. <clears throat> I predicted the following things. The traditional library is not what it used to be. Technology has already changed us, I said. And the important thing for us is to harness it rather than be harnessed by it. To harness it for cataloging, for circulation, for inventory control, for the making of surrogates. <clears throat> and it seems to me that neither Houghton nor the Athenaeum is going to become a virtual library for obvious reasons. But they're both going to need to provide virtual access to databases and perhaps beyond databases around the world. Secondly, I predicted that almost everything we prize about our current institutions will have a place in the library of the future, the rare book library or special collections library of the future. Acquisitions, exhibitions, publications, the kind of cataloging we wish to have, and obviously the preservation and conservation initiatives we need to undertake. There will be different emphases at different institutions but I think that many of the things we prize will remain. Third, I predicted that in the next five to 10 years, there would be a real explosion in the use of our collections. There would be brought about, of course, by these electronic card catalogs, so to speak, that would simply let people know about our holdings, sometimes for the first time. This is a point I make a lot with Athenaeum supporters. When the Houghton Library went <clears throat> online, so to speak, <clears throat> it made a difference. But virtually everyone <clears throat> who was a serious scholar knew that if they were interested in a certain book, they might well take a look at Houghton when they were in the Boston area. People don't know that about the Boston Athenaeum. Many people around the country have never heard of it. And virtually nobody knows what our holdings are. And they don't know how many times they might be able to find a unique or a very rare item where we are. And that's all changed through the national databases. And now that we're online and have a homepage as well. 
So the revolution for us at the Athenaeum has been dramatic in a way that it hasn't been for institutions that have more of a national or an international reputation. And the corollary, as I said seven years ago about that, <clears throat> is that there would be unprecedented challenges for preservation of the collections as well, given the increased use we would have. Fourth, I said, the more virtual we become, the more we invest in surrogates, the more our holdings of original materials will mark the distinctions between and among us. Unless, of course, we have universal digitization of everything. But that's not going to happen anytime soon. Fifth, penultimately, I said, many of our researchers or members don't know how to pursue either original research or information gathering by electronic means which means that there are going to be entirely new roles for librarians in the coming years. And that's something that I think that most uh, reference librarians have faced in a very interesting way in the last few years. There's simply a, not just a, an increase in the number of people coming, but in the kinds of backgrounds they have. Finally, I pointed out, and this is never news, that there are always going to be terribly strong pressures on the finances of the institutions we care about. And it's no coincidence, obviously, that the Harvard College Library and the Athenaeum are currently engaged in capital campaigns. And what I like to say in Boston is that anything invested in either library would be well invested indeed, because I think they represent the very finest libraries of their kind in the country. Um, I can say that in Boston. I, I haven't said it here, of course. Um, but I'm reminded again and again, and this is, this is where, I'll, where I'll close, I'm reminded of that wonderful paradox that Terry posed to me some years ago, which is that we have stewardship of national treasures that must be supported through local resources. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's something we obviously have to do as strongly as we can. Thank you very much.